we don't give the people who are at the center of a grieving moment enough space to say, I know what I need. And, you know, we do this awkward thing. Let me, let me know if you need anything, but it's <laughs> right. It's just sort of like, um, just follow me and don't make me say words and let me do what I need to do and just have my back. I'm Autumn Brown. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown. And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. You'll never see me again like Quentin Tarantino. I start at the end of everything and anything you told me. When we talk about the end of the world, we need to think about what is ending. This episode is about exploring endings. And we begin, as usual, with some wisdom from Octavia Butler's Earthseed. To survive, let the past teach you. Past customs, struggles, leaders, and thinkers. Let these help you. Let them inspire you, warn you, give you strength. But beware, God is change. Past is past. What was cannot come again. To survive, know the past. Let it touch you. Then let the past go. So we've had a major day here. And um, here is a, outside of Avon, Minnesota, where Autumn and her family call home. We live on five acres of land in the woods um, in rural central Minnesota. And the nearest town is called Avon, and about a 1,000 people live there. Um, and when I say the woods, I mean, literally, we live, like, most of our land is forested, and we have ponds and stuff. But, yeah, we've had a really major day. We've had some, like, serious country stuff go down. Um, well, and one thing I wanted to add is one of the reasons why it feels important to talk about this day is that Adam and I, one thing we share in very different ways is that we regularly get asked why we live where we live. So something that we would love to do at various points in the show is really not make a case for where we live, but just give you a picture of the places that we live. And I really feel like I go back and forth. Like I spend a portion of my life here um, in this wooded place (laughs) visiting and the day that we had today was actually like, oh, this is the kind of day that I live for when I come here. Um, so let's tell you about this day. Yeah. And I can tell you a little bit about like my, my experience of the day was probably a little bit different than yours because, um, this morning I got up and, um, took Siobhan, my, who's my middle child into town for an appointment. And, um, and by town, I mean the nearest, um, mid-sized city, which is a city called St. Cloud, Um, and, um, when we take trips into town, because we go into town fairly rarely, it means that we go in for the one thing, but then we also have to pack in a series of errands around that thing. So it's, it's always kind of a production going to town. Um, but it was actually really good because, um, it's rare as a, as a, as a mother of three, it's rare for me to get time with just one of my kids and really like in a sustained way. So like 
I took her to her appointment. Then we went to the store and got a new pair of shoes because Siobhan wears her shoes really hard. And so she had worn like through the toe area of both of her shoes. And, um, and then we went to the co-op and shop for groceries and had lunch together, just the two of us, which never happens. And she's seven years old. So like just hanging out with her is amazing and she's fascinating. Um, and then we, we stopped at least one more place before coming home. So it was quite, a um, an amazing kind of, um, not, not amazing as an experience, but more like amazing as something that really encapsulates what it means to live in the woods, which is that like, you can't ever just go to town or you don't ever just go to town for one thing. Like you always make it the most efficient possible use of your time so that you can get back to the woods where your actual life is happening. I'm laughing over here because I'm like, Oh, I'm like that, but it's cause I'm lazy. Like, <laughs> Like I totally live in the middle of a city, but I'm also like, I travel all the time. So when I'm home, it's home. I just want to be like hermited in my house and like wearing pajamas the whole time. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm like, we used to be like, okay, I'm going out to the grocery store. What other things need to happen during that time? Because this is the only time I'm going to, and it literally to the point of like, I'm not taking my recycling down until it's time to go and do my (laughs) chores. Anyway, so I want to just describe what my day was in parallel, which um, before y'all took off, I had a really powerful experience actually of being able to talk Siobhan down from a tantrum, which is not always possible. She's got really powerful rage when it comes. And we had a really successful experience of that, which I felt like kind of set this tone for the day of like, we're going to have a good day. We're both invested in having a good day. And so is everyone else. Um, And then I made chocolate truffle pancakes for everyone. And um, so I was already just feeling like really bombed about this day. Just like we were winning. Yeah. Like one of the things my kids share with you, Adrian, is like, uh, like a taste for luxury. It's true. They really understand that there's quality and then there's quality. And like when I was making the pancakes, they were like, are you getting the truffles from Belgium out? (laughs) I was like, yes, I'm getting you the truffles from Belgium. I'm going to shave them into these pancakes and they're going to be amazing. Um, And you're going to have some homemade maple syrup that you all made and it's just going to be amazing. So we did that. And then we had like movie morning where we watched Moana and we watched Trolls, um, just Finn and Maraid and I. And Finn really wasn't watching because he was on his iPad playing Minecraft. And I was kind of reading Roxanne Gay's new like memoir, um, amazing offering called hunger. And so we're just having this, you know, morning and the whole time we were like, it's going to be a good play day. It's going to be a good beach day today. And a couple of times we went outside and we went to visit the new kittens. So right. A couple of days before I came to visit this time, five new kittens were born, um, to the cat that y'all just got like six months ago. Yeah. Just to frame up like the amazingness of the fact that we have five kittens. Um, (laughs) so my partner Genjo and I, um, decided to, um, get some cats last summer in order to be able to like deal with our mouse issue. And, um, and like, he like went out to a friend's aunt's farm with the intention of getting like two grown ass cats to like deal with our 
mice and came back with two kittens um, because that's what was available. And they were like maybe a month or two months old each. Um, and we fell in love with them immediately. So they, they came to us in August. They've grown up over the last year with us. Um, and then eventually... What are their names? Oh, yeah. They have really amazing names. So the way the naming went down, because I have, again, three children, and each of them needed to have a role in the naming process. So Finn named one of them a first name. Maraid named the other a first name. And then Siobhan gave them a shared middle name. So one of them is named Glitch, and the other is named Frog. But they have a shared middle name of Orla. So Glitch Orla Brown Conway and Frog Orla Brown Conway are the names of these cats. Anyway, so at some point a few months ago, they mated. Uh, that was unexpected. And <laughs> actually, this was one of my favorite things. So I'm allergic to cats and the kids know this. Everyone knows this. And, you know, they every single time I'm going to come to visit or anything, they're like, can you touch the cats? Can you see the cats? Can you smell the cats? Can you feel the cats? Can we take you to meet the cats? You know, because they know I'm allergic and I'm like slowly, you know, giving my boundaries because they love these cats. And uh, about um, on June 1st, I called Siobhan because it's, it was her birthday and I called to say, what's your good news? And she was like, I've got two pieces of good news. One we got another cat. <laughs> and I was like, another cat? She's like, another kitten named Tina. Tina. An orphan. And I was like, I thought you already had two. And she was like, well, it was an orphan. And that was enough of an explanation of why this third cat was joining the home. And then I was like, well, what's the other piece of good news? And she's like, you know our cat, Frog? And I was like, yeah. She goes, he's having babies, <laughs> which I just love because I love how they hold gender like so loosely and I was just like, yeah, a frog is a he and frog is having babies. And those two things coexist and it's no big. Yeah. They're very fluid with pronouns like uh, and also like other gendered titles. Like they frequently call me daddy and call Sam mommy. And oh, yeah, I guess maybe I should clarify that my partner has two names. So I'll interchangeably go back and forth between calling him Genjo, which is his um, Zen way name and calling him Sam, which is his English given name. Um, so yeah, so frog was pregnant. We didn't know how many kittens were coming. Um, and then just a few days ago, I think it was a Friday night. I was actually out of town when this happened. Um, but my mom was in town and Sam was in town with the kids and she spent a night screaming outside. Um, Froggy did. And um, then she was not visible, not not able to be found all of Saturday. And then Sunday morning, um, she made herself known. And she had given birth to a litter of five kittens. She had actually given birth right next to the house, up against one of the walls, like under the eaves, um, and had spent a full, like, 36 hours outside with her kittens. Um, and then we moved them into the garage initially. Um, and then... Yesterday, we moved them into one of the sheds on our land. Um, so you were saying you had gone to visit the kittens. Yeah. So today, a couple of times, you know, it was like the kids were like, well, let's go look at the kittens. Let's see how they're doing. How many days old are they? Sunday, Sunday, Monday, Monday, Tuesday. Tuesday. Today's Wednesday. So five days. Five days old. Five days old. And they haven't opened their eyes yet. So we would go down, like we went to play badminton. Um, 
which no one was very good at, but we still gave it a lot of effort. And so we went and said hi to the kittens on the way to badminton, checked on them. And, you know, they were like all smushed around and being very cute. And, um, and then we waited, y'all came home while we were playing badminton. And then we all came inside, had a lovely lunch, but it was like, it's beach time. So we spent a few hours at the beach and it was glorious. It was one of those perfect, perfect days at the beach where the wind is coming across the lake just enough to make some waves happen. And the kids are all swimming their hearts out with their life vests on. And um, the beach that we go to is on a lake that's like on a big piece of land that's owned by the local university and, and Abbey. And, um, and there's a dock there. There's a raft you can swim out to. It's beautiful. And there's like families that have just been swimming on that lake for years and years. Um, and so we had this amazing, amazing couple of hours in the afternoon. And then we came home and I just, I guess the way I experienced this was that I walked inside the house and then I heard Siobhan scream from she had, she got out of the car as has been her way as and immediately went to check on the kittens. And um, so by the time I got inside the house, she was coming out of the shed screaming that she was pretty sure that one of the kittens was dead. And so I went down to the shed to check and she was absolutely right. One of the kittens had already had died and, um, and the rest of the kittens were still, you know, nursing up against frog. The frog was right there with them. And then this one kitten was laying off to the side in the box, um, and very much already dead and cold to the touch. And so it was really intense. I mean, the kids had really, really understandably extremely strong reactions. They all started weeping and wailing. And so I, I picked the, the kitten up and actually brought it outside of the shed and started passing it around from kid to kid. Well, and I just want to say I was blown away immediately by just how familiar these children are with like, oh, grief is something that we do and we give ourselves to. And I, I'm like, they've experienced a lot of death actually in their young lives. Yeah. And in the last few years, they've lost a sibling, three great grandparents and a great aunt. And of course, with all of those losses, they've watched us, their parents and caregivers go through the most intense grief of our lives. So there's crying, there's telling the stories, there's doing some kind of rituals, there's burying, and they were very quickly aware like, of all these things and being able to say, like, here's what's really sad about this, is that mm-hmm. Glitch never, I mean, that um, Geit, the name of the kitten that we lost, never got to open his eyes and Geit mm-hmm. didn't get to experience this place and Geit didn't get to do this and Geit didn't get to do that. Mm-hmm. And it was just really incredible to see how how seriously they took the grief that they were up to. And they were like, it's our work basically to do this grief work right now. Uh, yeah. And so they, you know, it's, it's really, it was really amazing. They immediately were like, okay, we need to find a box to put him in. Um, we need to do something. We need to bury him. Oh, we can bury him with the baby because we, you know, when we lost our baby in 2014, we actually... Um, because of of 
the way that he measured in size, we were actually able to bring him home from the hospital after we delivered him and bury him on our land, which is actually an extremely rare situation to have. And we were very blessed. (laughs) In fact, in in some ways I think that we got like some sort of, I think we got by like uh, with some illegal shit (laughs) as far as the hospital is concerned. But, um, but it was a totally a miracle that we got to bring him home. And so we brought him home and we have him buried on our land. And so the kids were immediately like, oh, we need to bury him with the baby. Um, we need to put him in a box. And Adrian was like, oh, well, let's do let's do this ceremony. And so um, we got cups of water and we sat at the picnic table outside and we put Geit, the kitten, in a box And each kid got a cup of water and Adrian and I each got a cup of water and Adrian led us in this little ceremony where we each would pour out a little bit of our, drink a little bit of our water, pour it out and then share a memory that we had about Geit and then put a flower in the box with Geit. Um, And so each of them got to do that and they were just so sweet because they're still all weeping and crying and just so upset, so profoundly upset Um, but even already in the midst of that ceremony, they were able to start giggling a little bit and laughing about just different things that have happened over the last few days. Um, and yeah, just really truly in their feelings. Well, and I was just going to say, I feel like there's something about the act of libations. Like even if you're like, oh, I don't necessarily know the history of libations or don't understand the cultural context of libations, but you know, I keep thinking about these children being raised out in this environment so far from basically a lot of other black people (laughs) and being like libations is one of these ancestral wisdoms that are actually part of their wisdom as well. So the idea of being like, we are water, we pour out water. Water is one of the ways that we like pass on energy, pass on spirit. Um, feels really good and feels really right to do here because it's like water is never wasted here. Yeah. It really goes towards growth. And I love that like Marade's instinct was like, we should pour water on Geit, right? And mm-hmm. like that somehow water and flowers on Geit would be part of yeah. part of it. I was like, no, but you know, that will happen out in the woods too, is that water will make its way and and you know, the woods will make its way. It's like the that, you know, the I it was also important to be like not burying in a box means that Geit gets to go back to being part of nature sooner. Yeah. So that was, I think in some ways the most amazing thing, right. Was that like, after we did this little ceremony where Geit was sitting in this box, but then I was like, all right, if I'm going to bury him, I'm like (laughs) truly time wise, I don't have time to like dig a hole that's big enough to hold him and the box. Right. I need to, I need to like dig a hole that's like the right size for just his little tiny body. Um, and so we gave the kids a little break. We sent them inside and I went out to our little burial ground where we have it. We actually have an altar set up out there with a Jizo statue. Um, and if you don't know what that is, it's really easy to learn about. It's a special, um, Jizo is um, a, a bodhisattva in the Buddhist tradition that is specifically protects um, um, children and especially protects children who die before they're born or at a very young age. So um, that's where our baby is buried out with this Jizo altar and this Jizo Buddha statue, Jizo Bodhisattva statue is standing over um, his burial site. Um, and it's actually like the perfect Bodhisattva for the kitten as well, right? Because the kitten died when he was like five weeks, five days old. Um, and so I went out there and I dug a tiny hole, came back And we all walked out together with um, the box that held Geit in it. And we walk out there and 
the mom frog follows us out there and the dad glitch they both followed us out there to the hole and Maraid and Finn together like took Gite out of the box and put him into the hole and Frog came right over and was just like sniffing and sort of pawing at Gite and just like checking on him and then she and Glitch just sort of stood off to the side like rubbing necks with each other while we put the dirt back over Gite's body and it was so beautiful that they like you know and you know cats are very independent they don't follow you usually <laughs> like in my experience my cats don't often follow me around um so the fact that they followed us out there and stayed with us while we were burying guy, it was just like very beautiful. And, um, and, and I could tell with the kids, as soon as we were done burying guy, that they felt a sense of completion about the whole process. Like they were like ready to go back inside and then they've had a really nice evening. The rest of their evening has been like very chill, very relaxed. They're not like continuing to fall apart. Um, and, um, yeah, I just feel like there's something about, I mean, for me, this has been one of the broader lessons that I draw continuously from living out here is how important it is for, um, the processes of the earth and the cycles of life and death to be able to take their course naturally. And that the, the natural completion of things is what gives us space to actually breathe and to then move. And so, you know, the thing I said about Geit dying at the, you know, five days old, this is the same thing that I believe about my baby dying when I was five months pregnant with him, which is like, this was my child's complete life. And this was, this five days was Geit's complete life. And, you know, your baby that died, you know, and through the ectopic pregnancy, that was that baby's complete life. And if we have that understanding that that is completion, that I think is the source of, it's an extraordinary source of power, I think, and groundedness for in my life. Well, and I just want to uplift that you did such good work preparing them. Because even before you said, like, look, it's not necessarily the case that all of the all of this litter is going to survive. It's not necessarily the case that all these kittens are going to make it. You know, like let's we just have to be okay with like whatever ends up happening here needs to be okay. And I think that giving them that little preparation like did help so that now that this has happened, it's like okay, this is one of the things that happens with kittens. And and we had eight kittens, we had eight cats here, and now we have seven. This is part of the natural order of things and that they get to see life and death here all the time in so many ways. Um, and I, and then the questions that they ask are the same ones. I mean, I think what struck me today is like the same cycle of grief. Like it's so ingrained. It's like the same stuff that we ask, you know, it's like when we hear that someone has died or we hear that there's a new death at the hands of the police or, you know, these different things that are becoming a part of our daily existence. There's like that initial, like, Oh, I cannot believe it. I want to deny it. I want to push it away. And then, Oh, I can't deny it. It's, it's here. It's, it's real. And then why, why did this happen? It's not fair. I have my memories. I have my feelings. It's not fair. Why? And then actually moving through to like, what is it going to, what's going to happen that'll complete it for me? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is such an important part to not leave those loops open, which I think we do when we deny that grief happens or when we deny, when we deny that grief happens, we deny that pain is, the collective pain is happening and we don't close the loop on it, like go through the process of like creating ritual and making sure that that ritual gets 
follow through one, mm-hmm. um, then I think we're just left with all these dangling loops of grief that are just sort of waiting for us or weighing us down all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something so incredible about the fact that like we do know how to create these rituals for ourselves mm-hmm. that put us in right relationship with life and death and the cycles of it. And if we do these rituals, like we can have some completion, we can have some peace yeah. immediately and in the long term. Yeah. And I think the thing for me that like my experience, the psych, the thing that the ceremonies and the rituals do is that they, um, they actually like actively take the experience out of the space of intellectualization and of needing to understand what's happening or why, you know what I mean? That like, I remember after my baby died that, you know, again, we were very fortunate to be able to bring his body home from the hospital. And like, there was this way in which Sam and I knew very instinctively what needed to happen next each time, like every, each next step that happened, it was very instinctive of like, okay, now we're going to bring the baby home. Okay. Now Sam is going to make a pyre. Now we're going to burn the body. And like, and I remember waking up the morning after we had burnt the body in the pyre and like I sat up in bed and I was like, I need to go find the bones. And so I didn't even, I remember I didn't even like say anything to anybody. I just like threw my clothes on and went straight outside into the woods and started sifting through the ashes looking for the bones and finding like many tiny bones, which I ended up holding on to for like a year. And then on the anniversary of his um, birthday was when I finally buried his bones. And, but all of that, it's like, none of that was planned. It was just like this sense of, there was this sense of instinctive ceremony that for me was about like, I don't need to understand any, I don't need to understand what's happening, right? Like there's no making sense of what's happening right now. There is only the, the way that I can ritualize the fact that it's happening in a way, like I'm ritualizing the fact that I am experiencing this right now. Right. And that for me, ultimately later made everything much more understandable. Right. right? Once I was ready to get to a place where I could even deal with it in an intellectual way. And I think that, I think that what we see a lot in our society is that we have such a strong tendency to just like, um, circumvent or just like, what's the word for, when we sort of cut something reduce or there's a short circuit, there's like, there's a tendency to like short circuit the, the processes so that we want to jump straight to understanding into intellectualization and like cartwheel past the part of the process that would actually be useful to us. I love that you're bringing this up. I mean, like two things occur to me. One is you all had such instinct, not only for what you needed to do for yourselves and for the baby, but also orchestrating what needed to happen with everyone else. Like you knew where the kids needed to be. You knew like the, the two of you needed to handle portions of it by yourself. And then that you invited us in as was appropriate and as you needed us to support you. Um, which I just think was such incredible modeling and just, it was so clear actually to be a part of, it was like, this is so hard and it's also so clear. And I think that a lot of times we don't give the people who are at the center of a grieving moment enough space to say, I know what I need. And, you know, we do this awkward thing. Let me, let me know if you need anything, but it's (laughs) right. It's just sort of like, um, just follow me and don't make me say words and let me do what I need to do. 
and just have my back, you know, in that and like hold the boundary that I ask you to hold. Um, It was so powerful. And then it also makes me think like, oh, in my situation, I didn't think about like, was there any flesh for me in the process, anything that I could hold on to until well after. And they were like, oh no, you know, they just, they looked at me like I was a weirdo for even suggesting. I'm like, oh, you pulled something out of me (laughs) and it's my left fallopian tube and it includes this creature, this person, this something, right? And that that lack of being able to complete in that way, like of having anything other than these odd pictures I couldn't suss out that was like something happened. Um, You know, they were more concerned with like how much blood was in my body than the fact that like this creature was trying to make its life on me, inside of me. Um, Oh, hold on, here's a baby. Hi, Hi, sweetness. Do you want to talk into the microphone? What are you hungry for? Uh, <laughs> macaroni and cheese. Really? You want more mac and cheese? Uh-huh. With bacon or with no bacon? No bacon. Okay. Is there anything else you want to tell people? No. All right. <laughs> Thanks for being so clear. Do you want to get some mac and cheese while I finish saying this thing? Because you know what happened. Well, and I can say it while you talk, but basically just that because I didn't have that physical completion process, it was so important for me to have the somatic and emotional completion process that I did with my somatic body worker, uh, Mama Lisa Thomas Adiemo, who's based in the Bay, um, which happened... Is that that how much you're... Is that how much... You're um, talking about? Yes. This is us. Your mom and I are recording a conversation where we're talking. Basically, we just told them about the kittens. And now it made us remember some own kittens of our own lives, basically. Yeah. Did you tell the, it about... Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, we told all about Gait. But so with Mama Lisa Thomas Adeyemo... No, with no bacon. Do you want to just eat around it? Yeah. I'll just eat. <laughs> so I went through the somatic process with Lisa, Mama Lisa, and it was incredible. And it was about nine months after the process. It was basically when it would have been the birthing time. And we went through a somatic process of like completing the birth that has been so healing and so important for me. But I think that that process of like completion matters, like completion matters so much. And it's one thing that I'm like, oh, if you take forward lessons from everything that happens, like today just felt like such a clear lesson in completion matters no matter how old you are, no matter the circumstances. And so with that, I think we can complete here for our recording for tonight. Um, And I'm sure we'll keep talking more. Um, Anything you want to say goodnight to our listeners? No. Goodnight on behalf of everyone out here in Avon, Minnesota. Wow, that was kind of an intense episode. Yeah, that's big. It was a big one. Um, We ended up losing um, two of the other kittens from Frog's first litter. And actually, Mm -hmm. those other losses ended up happening... Um, as you remember, Adrian, uh, within the next two days, and it was really interesting yeah. to watch how um, the kids' response to losing the kittens shifted 
over over those days from, you know, their initial response to Geit dying, which was, you know, that pretty intense wave of grief moving towards completion. And so then by the time the second and third cats were kittens were dying, they were much more at ease with the whole thing. You know, I think that they, yeah, they participated in one of the burials of one of the kittens. Um, one of the kittens died pretty late at night and I kind of had to go ahead and bury him before, you know, one, the kids had already gone to bed, but mostly yeah. they were just, they were very adapted to what was happening at that point. It was really interesting to notice, um, how comfortable they became with the fact that, yeah. okay, this is just what's happening. And we really hope that two of these kittens survive and two of them did survive. And actually now they are very healthy, very big, you know, they're, they're totally doing great. They're almost the size of their mom. And mm. they're very, um, the, the two that survived are um, Zebra and Nina. And um, <laughs> one whose name keeps changing, the latest version <laughs> of her name, I think, is Floor. <laughs> That's great. I'm like, what is that cat's name now? Exactly. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> well, and you know, something I think we should maybe put in the like on the page for the podcast is um, there's a piece of art. I think I got a picture of it that Marie drew that was like, (laughs) it was like basically a picture of you and the kittens and your baby, um, you know, the infant phenomenon. Do you remember Uh, that? Did you see that? Yes. Um, And it was so amazing because for her, she had really quickly processed that like everything kind of comes out of your womb or like (laughs) everything comes out, all life comes out of there. (laughs) And that like the kittens and the infant phenomenon are all like together somewhere. (laughs) Um, And I just love how directly they were connecting like this grief with all grief. Um, Yes. This loss with all loss. Um. And the thing that I want to add in here is this this season, this this whole season has been such an intense season of loss. And there's been several losses in the community that I'm a part of. Um, and I want to uplift uh, two people. Um, one, I want to uplift Dona Hilona, um, who just lost her son, Chewy, to a long, long battle with leukemia. Mm. And just the gorgeous grieving process and being with process, um, she was in a sustained process. She and her family have been in a sustained process of loving, loving and loving and loving Chewy um, and letting him go. Mm. And it's just been, you know, it's that thing. It's like you you know, a mother bearing a child is an impossible thing. Um, and just watching the kind of ferocity, um, that she brought to his wellness and to his passing. Um, I want to uplift her and, and then, um, my friend Yolanda Hendricks, uh, passed unexpectedly this, this season. And, um, there was so much incredible coming together of community, supporting each other, And I really want to uplift uh, my friend, Mama Lisa, who was Yolanda's life partner, Mm. Um, just as someone who has modeled um, immense grace and generosity, uh, you know, has been the kind of person who has been like, I'm going to make sure that every butch who loved Yolanda and was friends with Yolanda gets uh, one of Yolanda's bow ties or neckties Mm, and, you know, just keeps bringing like beautiful things, um, to people that were like, this is something Yolanda loved and and here it is for you. 
um, and just being like, this is something that we're all experiencing. And there's, there's my grief, there's your grief, there's our grief. Um, and then ultimately there's Yolanda's life and Yolanda's incredible life and incredible impact. And, and they were all celebrating that even as we long for her and, and miss her. Um, so just wanted to send love to Yolanda, wherever she is now and yes. to, to Mama Lisa and to Yolanda's family who were just incredible with, with all of the friends that made it there and to Yolanda's extended, loving, queer family in the Bay that I think did the best memorial, the queerest memorial um, that I've ever experienced <laughs> in my yes. life. It was so incredible and queer and beautiful and, um, and ended in, in like massive line dancing. Um, wow. And, <laughs> and that felt right. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for yeah. uplifting your beautiful friends. And with that, we're going to bring this episode to a close. We know it was uh, a heavy one. Um, As always, if you like what you're hearing, please let us know. There are so many ways to let us know and to support the work that we're doing. Um, You can comment on our work. You can repost our work. We're all over social media at End of the World Show. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, And of course, we appreciate it. You can make a sustaining donation through Patreon um, by visiting our page, which is patreon.com slash end of the world show. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by our beloved Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes to us from Blue Dot Sessions and Tunde Alaniran. The song you're hearing now is called Symbol. And it was actually co-written by Day with Adrienne Marie Brown. You can find Day's music on Bandcamp, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, or Amazon. Thanks for listening. Simple.